Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, October 10th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with today's top stories. Israel announces a Gaza total blockade, while a Hamas rep is reportedly open to a truce. And a report suggests an alleged Iranian support for Hamas's attack. A catastrophic earthquake in Afghanistan claims 2,000 lives. Senator Tuberville pledges to continue his block of military appointments despite the conflict. U.S. Senators meet with Xi Jinping. German voters deal a blow to Schultz's coalition. The U.K.'s highest court hears an appeal on the Rwanda migration plan. RFK Jr. announces his run as an independent for U.S. President. California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoes an anti-caste discrimination bill. And Walgreens Pharmacy staff plans to walk off the job this week. In our top story, a total blockade of Gaza is in progress and a Hamas official is reportedly open to a truce. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, BBC News, Sky News and Washington Post. Senior Hamas official Musa Abu Marzouk told Al Jazeera in a phone interview on Monday that the Islamist group is open to discussions over a potential ceasefire with Israel, stating that its targets have been achieved. Earlier, the spokesman for Hamas's Al-Qassam brigades threatened to kill an Israeli civilian hostage every time Israel hits civilian homes without advanced warning, vowing to broadcast the executions. This comes as Israel Defense Minister Yoav Gallant announced a total blockade of Hamas-run Gaza, including supply of food, water, and fuel, after the group conducted the largest attack on Israel in decades. As of late Monday evening, local time, about 900 people have been reportedly killed in Israel, while nearly 690 have lost their lives on the Palestinian side of the Gaza Strip, as the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, continue to fight Palestinian militants responsible for an unprecedented attack on October 7th. Of those who have died in Israel, 260 were killed during an attack on the Supernova Music Festival in the Negev Desert. In addition to fatalities, hundreds of Israelis, including women, children, and elderly people, are being held hostage by Hamas, though the group claims that some captives and captors have been killed in airstrikes conducted by Israel. The UN has said that over 123,000 people have already been displaced in Gaza. Israel on Sunday formally declared war on Hamas. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden ordered a U.S. aircraft carrier strike group to sail to the eastern Mediterranean Sea declaring his, quote, full support for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The U.S. is additionally providing Tel Aviv with other munitions and equipment. Israel has reportedly called up 300,000 reservists as it plans for offensive operations against Hamas targets in Gaza. Thanks, Eric, for that update on the conflict. We have a pro-Israel narrative from CNN. The Israeli Defense Forces had no option but to repel a violent attack against sovereign Israeli territory. Hamas must face the consequences for its vicious and terrorizing actions. This includes massive offensive military operations in Gaza to respond to historic attacks on Israeli soil. Follow that up with a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Vox. Extraordinary violence has been committed on both sides, and Tel Aviv bears a great deal of responsibility for creating oppressive conditions within Gaza, as well as its recent attempts to divide the Al-Aqsa Mosque between Muslims and Jews. It's vital that Israel avoids creating a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza with its military actions. A report claims Iran helped Hamas plan the attack on Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, CNBC, Khomeini, Reuters, and Wall Street Journal. 
The Wall Street Journal reported Sunday that militant group Hamas's Saturday attacks were planned with the help of Iranian officials. While the final go-ahead was given in the Lebanese capital of Beirut on October 2nd, the report, citing sources from Gaza Strip-based Hamas and Lebanon-based militant group Hezbollah, alleged that members of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps had been planning the assault since August. However, while Iran has long been known to be one of Hamas's principal financial backers, a U.S. official quoted by the Wall Street Journal said, We don't have any information at this time to corroborate the account that the attacks were backed by Tehran. In an interview with CNN, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken shared a similar message. Quote, We have not yet seen the evidence that Iran directed or was behind this particular attack, but there is certainly a long relationship. This comes after Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has vowed to eradicate the usurper Zionist regime, which he claimed was full of spite and anger at the International Islamic Unity Conference last week. Meanwhile, Iran's mission to the UN has denied its role in Hamas's attacks on Israel, saying, We emphatically stand in unflinching support of Palestine. However, we are not involved in Palestine's response as it has been taken solely by Palestine itself. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. Our first spin is an anti-Iran narrative coming from New York Post. It's a no-brainer that Iran helped Hamas carry out the brutal attacks against Israel. The group is financially dependent on Iran and doesn't make critical decisions without the country's explicit backing. And we have a pro-Iran narrative from the Mayor News Agency. While Iran unequivocally supports Palestine's legitimate efforts to bring seven decades of oppressive and illegal occupation of its territory by Israel to an end, Saturday's attacks, which revealed a failure of Israel's security organizations, were nothing to do with Tehran. And a nerd narrative comes from Metaculus once again. This time they say there's a 30% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before 2025. Tragic news coming from Afghanistan, according to the Taliban. An earthquake kills at least 2,000. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Week, Reuters, New York Times, BBC News, and NDTV. At least 2,000 people were killed after a magnitude 6.3 earthquake hit Afghanistan's western Herat province on Saturday, the Taliban administration said Sunday. As of Saturday, the UN's initial death toll stood at 320, though the figure hadn't been verified. The powerful earthquake was followed by three strong aftershocks, which reportedly destroyed buildings and buried hundreds of civilians under the debris. The Ministry of Disasters originally reported that over 9,000 had been injured before correcting the estimate to over 2,000. Though these figures and the death toll are expected to rise as the search for the missing continues. A state of emergency has been declared as more aftershocks were expected. With the World Health Organization dispatching 12 ambulances to hard-hit districts to assist in relief efforts. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the epicenter of the first massive earthquake, which struck around 11 a.m. local time, was about 25 miles northwest of Herat City. Last June, an earthquake rattled the mountainous region of eastern Afghanistan, killing over 1,000 people and injuring more than 1,500. Thanks for those tragic facts, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from Prevention Web. Afghanistan is prone to earthquakes, particularly in the Hindi Kush mountain range, near the convergence of the Eurasian and Indian tectonic plates. Not much can be done to protect the country and its neighbors from this unfortunate geographical feature, which puts the lives of those living in the area at risk. Narrative B comes from The Conversation. 
People don't usually associate earthquakes with climate change, but they are intimately connected as more extreme weather can stress fault lines and make earthquakes more damaging and deadly. By doing more about climate change, this aggravating factor of the severity of quakes could be tempered in the future. And we have a third narrative C from foreign policy. Though Afghanistan has a long history of earthquakes, the destruction creates urgency in designing and implementing strategies to reduce the death toll. However, the decades-long conflict, ongoing dire economic and hunger crises, and stalled international aid have restricted the country's ability to respond to natural disasters. And the nerds from Metaculus giving us a nerd narrative once again. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 79,100 people will die as a result of the most deadly earthquake between 2020 and 2029. Senator Tuberville continues his military nominations blockade. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, Business Insider, and Politico. U.S. Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican of Alabama, is continuing his months-long blockade of military nominations in protest of the Biden administration's abortion policy. In response to Democrats' call to end the blockade due to Hamas's attack on Israel, a Tuberville spokesperson said they must move top nominees individually until the Pentagon revokes its policy of covering travel costs for troops seeking an abortion that crosses state lines. Military promotions are usually processed en masse, but senators have the power to require individual roll call votes for each one, which has led to over 300 nominees awaiting confirmation. Among them are President Biden's nominee to be the Navy's top officer, Admiral Lisa Franchetti, and General David Alvin, nominated to lead the Air Force, with both currently serving the job on an acting basis. The Senate last month was able to conduct votes for Air Force General Charles Q. Brown Jr. as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, coming four months after he was nominated, as well as General Randy George as Army Chief of Staff and General Eric Smith as Commandant of the Marine Corps. The Senate could vote to change the rules, but that would require a two-thirds vote. As Tuberville's decision has halted several confirmations for those who would lead the military in the Middle East, Senate Armed Services Chair Jack Reed said the severity of the crisis in Israel underscores the foolishness of Senator Tuberville's blockade. He added that the U.S. needs seamless military leadership in place to handle dangerous situations like this. To expedite the process and confirm the nominees en masse would require approval from all 100 senators, which can't happen until Tuberville lists his block on the Pentagon's abortion policy. Until then, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, will have to call each of the nominees individually, which can take hundreds of hours to complete. This comes as Schumer is leading a bipartisan group of senators on a trip to China this week, which means the upper chamber likely won't be able to conduct individual votes in the days ahead. Scott, thanks for laying those facts out for us. We begin our round of spins with a Democratic narrative coming from Guardian. First and foremost, Tuberville's blockade is in protest of a health care policy that is widely supported within the military. To risk the combat readiness of the U.S. military when one of its closest allies is under attack is both hyper-political and dangerous. There's no time to waste. But Senator Tuberville would rather focus on his culture war issue of abortion than fill the most important armed forces positions in the country. And we have a Republican narrative from the New York Post. If the Democrats truly cared about the Pentagon filling its positions, they wouldn't be focused on hyper-permissive abortion policies. Sadly, the Biden White House is so obsessed with the issue that it's willing to sacrifice the nation's combat readiness over something that has nothing to do with national defense. Tuberville's approach is about decoupling national security from woke politics. 
And we have a nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before the year 2030. U.S. Senators meet with China's leader Xi Jinping. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Reuters, China Daily, South China Morning Post, CNA, and France 24. A U.S. Senate bipartisan delegation led by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer met on Monday with the Chinese President Xi Jinping at the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. The state-run broadcaster CCTV reported in a meeting that lasted about 80 minutes. Schumer expressed his disappointment that the PRC had shown, quote, no sympathy for Israel following attacks by Hamas that killed hundreds of Israelis over the weekend, as Beijing only called for a two-state solution to end the violence. Chinese state media, however, avoided the topic. For his part, Xi focused on the China-U.S. bilateral relationship, arguing that the way that they get along will impact the future of humanity. He urged both sides to cooperate and peacefully coexist to address global challenges, including climate change as well as international and regional hotspots. The visiting delegation arrived in Shanghai on Saturday, marking the first congressional trip to the country since 2019. And this meeting indicates that Xi Jinping may attend the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, summit in San Francisco next month. Earlier on Monday, China's top diplomat Wang Yi told the group at Beijing's Diao Yutai State Guesthouse that he hoped that the PRC and the U.S. could rationally manage their differences, while Schumer raised concerns over competition for American business and workers. On the first leg of the visit, Schumer reportedly accused Chinese companies of fueling the U.S. fentanyl drug crisis in a meeting with Chen Jining, the top official of the ruling Chinese Communist Party in Shanghai. Other stops on the U.S. delegation's trip include South Korea and Japan. Thanks, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the New York Times. With the China trip by U.S. lawmakers led by Senate Majority Leader Schumer, Washington is again showing its commitment to restoring U.S.-China ties. Now it's up to China to build on that momentum and rethink its unfair treatment of U.S. companies. Moreover, the PRC's devastating fentanyl exports would be a huge opportunity for Beijing to likewise show its willingness to improve relations at little political or economic cost. The establishment critical narrative comes from Global Times. While Schumer criticizes China's alleged unfair economic practices, he fails to mention that the U.S. has added 42 Chinese companies to its export control list. On fentanyl, Beijing has already taken several measures. And by smearing China, Washington is evading its own responsibility for the drug epidemic at home. The PRC welcomes any improvement in bilateral relations, but any overtures from the U.S. must be based on sincerity. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 20% chance there will be a U.S.-China war before the year 2035. German voters deal a blow to Schultz's coalition in Bavaria and Hesse elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Euractiv, BBC News, the European Conservative, Guardian, DW, and the New York Times. Voters delivered a blow to Germany's federal coalition government of the Social Democratic Chancellor Olaf Scholz on Sunday, punishing the three ruling parties and turning to the right in state elections in Bavaria and Hesse. Provisional results show that Bavaria State Premier Markus Söder's center-right Conservative Christian Social Union, or CSU, which runs for elections solely in the southern state, placed first, receiving 37% of the votes. Right-leaning free voters and the right-wing populist alternative for Germany, or AFD, came in second and third, respectively, combined winning about 30% of the state vote. Meanwhile, Hesse Prime Minister Boris Rhein's Christian Democratic Union, the CSU's sister party, 
that has governed the state since 1999, won 34.6% of the votes, gaining more than 7 points compared to the 2018 elections. And the AFD achieved its best-ever result in any Western state with 18.4%. All parties in Schultz's federal coalition, his Social Democrats, SPD, the Greens, and the Pro-Market Free Democrats, or FDP, did worse than five years ago in both states, which are home to Munich and Frankfurt, and together account for roughly a quarter of the country's population. The SPD reportedly received the worst results since World War II, reaching 15% in Hesse and 8% in Bavaria, while the FDP failed to cross the 5% threshold in Bavaria, losing its seats in the state parliament. With the debate dominated by issues that were primarily national in scope, with conservative and right-wing factions both criticizing Schultz's immigration and energy policies, Sunday's elections were the first in a series of key regional German elections over the next two years in the run-up to the nationwide parliamentary vote in 2025. Scott, thank you for those facts. We began our round of spins with a left narrative, and it's coming from Washington Post. Despite radical positions usually tending to repel voters, Germany has seen the dangerous rise of the right-wing illiberal AFD at a faster pace than most countries in Europe. Results from Sunday's state elections in Bavaria and Hesse show that ignoring the dangerous far-right party is a failed strategy. Unless German politicians succeed in finding the right message to neutralize AFD, Europe's stability may be endangered. And unheard brings us the right narrative spin. The claim that the AFD was merely an East Germany phenomenon is dead for good, as it has drained voters from all parties in Bavaria and Hesse. Given unbalanced political offering in Germany since the conservative CDU-CSU shifted toward the center, it's easy to understand why anti-establishment right-wing parties are gaining ground amid a crisis of trust in established parties. The nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Germany will elect a new chancellor by February 2026. A top court in the United Kingdom hears a government's appeal on the Rwanda migrant plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, BBC News, The Telegraph, Reuters, Associated Press, and The Guardian. On Monday, a five-judge bench at the UK Supreme Court began a three-day hearing to determine whether there is a, quote, real risk to sending asylum seekers back to Rwanda. Lawyers for the Home Security told the top court that the Court of Appeal had unjustly blocked the UK government's plan, stopped 16 months ago, to proceed terming it as, quote, serious and pressing to tackle, quote, life-threatening crossings by channel migrants, the government's legal team argued there was a strong public interest for the Rwanda policy. Last June, the Court of Appeal ruled that the UK government's policy contradicted the country's Human Rights Act, stating that there was a risk legitimate asylum seekers could be sent to Rwanda and face persecution. Lawyers of migrants from Vietnam, Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Sudan claim it's unlawful and inhumane to deport people to Rwanda, which allegedly has a poor human rights record. In April 2022, the UK and Rwandan governments reached an agreement allowing the UK to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda and stay in the East African country if granted asylum. Thanks, Eric. Al Jazeera brings us the left narrative spin. The UK must act as a humanitarian-spirited country to those whose lives have been unfairly destroyed abroad rather than give in to the xenophobic rhetoric that the Conservative Party continues to churn out. Corrosive language and behavior to those genuinely seeking asylum will not solve the many problems that the Tories have failed to grapple with during their time in government. The Spectator gives us a right narrative for this story. While relevant legislation points towards a strong legal basis for the home security holding the right to describe what is indeed a safe country, 
There must be an acceptance by the UK's legal system that democratically elected politicians should have the final say on such nuanced matters. Despite all the noise that the left continues to make, there is genuinely popular support for the government's attempts at border control, which must be respected. RFK Jr. announces his independent run for U.S. president. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, the Associated Press, Reuters, CBS, The Guardian, and Forbes. On Monday, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is the nephew of former President John F. Kennedy and son of former U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, announced he is dropping his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination in order to run as an independent in the 2024 election. Kennedy, a longtime environmental lawyer, announced his intentions during a speech in Philadelphia, where he said he was declaring independence from not only the Democratic Party, but all political parties. Kennedy is backed by American Values 2024, a super PAC that has raised $17 million, including $7 million since July. At the moment, Kennedy's opponent will be current Democratic President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, whose polling shows as the leader for the Republican nomination. While Kennedy expressed pain over leaving the party his family represented for decades, his sisters and brother took to X, formerly Twitter, to say they found his campaign deeply saddening and perilous for the U.S. A recent Reuters-Ipsos poll showed Kennedy would get 14% of the vote, while Trump had 35% support and Biden 31%. Without Kennedy on the ballot, the poll showed Biden and Trump with 35% support alike. Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Democrats did everything they could to shun Kennedy, including refusing to hold debates between him and Biden and failing to provide Secret Service protection, even after Kennedy faced a serious threat of violence. If his independent campaign winds up taking support away from Biden, it will serve Democrats right for their poor treatment of him. And the Democratic narrative comes from the New York Times. RFK Jr. should have expected that his public criticism of the Democratic National Committee would earn him little help in mounting an unprecedented challenge to an incumbent president. His dangerous conspiracy theories and his embrace of some far-right political figures probably make him a better fit for the Republican Party or as someone who will actually take support from Trump and the GOP. The spins continue with a narrative C coming from MSNBC. RFK Jr.'s entrance as an independent candidate will no doubt hold an anti-establishment appeal. But the question is what the impact will be. He may very well take votes away from Biden, yet Trump is also preparing to mount an offense in case the reverse is true. Likewise, Kennedy's run may fizzle after the novelty wears off. Or this may grow into something major that no one, not even Trump, Biden, or Kennedy himself can wrap their head around right now. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 1% chance that RFK Jr. will be elected U.S. president in the year 2024. I mean, I can't help but think about Ross Perot's run in uh, 92 that they, at least what I've read, what some historians have said is one of the main reasons that Clinton won because, uh, you know, Perot took some of George H.W. Bush's uh, percentages. It's hard to, kind of as those narratives were saying, it's hard to detect which side RFK would take votes from. His Democratic roots, obviously, would think you're going to take away from Biden, but his rabble rouser kind of persona would take away from Trump. So I'm not sure if this, maybe it's just a wash. Yeah. As someone who follows politics, kind of like sports, it's exciting. But as a citizen of our country, I'm nervous. I don't know what's going to happen. More political news as California Governor Newsom vetoes the law banning caste discrimination. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Desert Sun, Associated Press, The Guardian, and BBC News. 
California Governor Gavin Newsom vetoed a bill Saturday that would have explicitly banned caste discrimination in the state, calling the bill unnecessary while citing various California laws that prohibit discrimination based on ancestry. The bill, Senate Bill 403, was introduced by Democratic State Senator Aisha Wahab and passed California's Assembly by a 55-3 vote and in the Senate by 31-5. The bill was amended several times to gain support in the chambers. In order to differentiate her bill from California's numerous civil rights laws prohibiting discrimination based on medical conditions, genetic information, sexual orientation, immigration status, and ancestry, Wahab's bill expanded, quote, ancestry to include lineal descent, heritage, parentage, caste, or any inherited social status. As the South Asian population, particularly Indian, has risen in the U.S. and Canada, some people have claimed that caste discrimination must be addressed in their new countries. India banned such discrimination for more than 70 years, but reports of bias against Dalits, or untouchables, have in diaspora communities in the U.S. Earlier this year, Seattle became the first city to include caste in its anti-discrimination laws, and Fresno followed suit on September 28th. Proponents of the bill went on a hunger strike to campaign to advocate for the legislation. However, some Hindu groups called it, quote, unconstitutional, adding that it could add polarization within the Indian American community. The Hindu American Foundation said the, quote, divisive bill exclusively singles out South Asians, while saying that Governor Newsom averted civil rights and constitutional disaster, while Republican representatives echoed the argument that California's existing laws already cover caste discrimination. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Narrative A from NBC News. Governor Gavin Newsom's decision to veto the bill that would prohibit caste-based discrimination is a major setback in the fight for civil rights and equality. While Newsom and other opponents of the bill claim that existing laws include caste discrimination, the fact is that marginalized people still experience harassment and exclusion based on their inherited social position. There is no reason to not fortify and broaden anti-discrimination policies, but civil rights advocates will continue to fight for the oppressed. Narrative B comes from the Economic Times. Governor Newsom made the correct decision to veto a bill that would have stigmatized American Indians and misrepresented Hindu beliefs. While some claim SB 403 would decrease discrimination against Indians and other South Asians, the fact is that it would have increased the level of discrimination in California. South Asia is an incredibly diverse region, and a blanket caste law would misrepresent many people. Discrimination is already prohibited, and there was no reason to create confusing categories in this new bill. Walgreens pharmacy employees walkout is planned for this week. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, CNN, and The Daily Mail. This week, pharmacy employees, including pharmacists, Technicians and other staff at U.S. Walgreens stores are expected to walk off the job. Some employees will stay away from work for three days, while some are expected to remain out just one day. The labor stoppage is expected to be over on Wednesday. The employees are trying to draw attention to what they deem as challenging working conditions, including a workload that makes it difficult to correctly fill prescriptions, which they claim in turn makes patients less safe. In a statement, Walgreens said it is making significant investments to pay pharmacy employees more and to retain talent. Walgreens employees don't have a union leader to coordinate the walkout or serve as a spokesperson. But organizers say approximately 500 of 9,000 stores across the U.S. could be affected. The Walgreens walkout comes after CVS pharmacists in the Kansas City area staged two walkouts over two weeks in September as part of a similar protest. Those employees are hopeful CVS will meet their demands. 
Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from FastCompany.com. Whether it's Walgreens, CVS, or Kaiser Permanente, workers in the healthcare field have been exploited for too long, and work stoppages might be the only way to get the attention of management. If these companies are serious about safely serving their patients, they'll take the necessary steps to bolster their staffing and make sure working conditions improve. The Walgreens work stoppage is another example of America's simmering recent labor movements. And Newsweek brings us home with Narrative B. Of course, management appreciates the unprecedented effort of its employees, especially as things have gotten more difficult because of the COVID pandemic. In order to satisfy worker requests, there should be an ongoing conversation between employees and those in these companies' boardrooms instead of walkouts that will create long lines and put patients in danger. A labor stoppage is not the answer. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, October 10th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can find out more at Verity.news. Download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.